Welcome to the doctrine of justification by faith through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ explained, confirmed, and vindicated by Dr. John Owen. We will be continuing to read from page 157 for this reading. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourselves to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now, to SWRB's reading of the doctrine of justification by faith through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, explained, confirmed, and vindicated, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing, and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man come unto the Father but by Him. John 14, verse 6. Guilt in the Scripture is the respect of sin unto the sanction of the law, whereby the sinner becomes obnoxious unto punishment. And to be guilty is to be hupadikos teotheo, liable unto the punishment for sin from God, as the supreme lawgiver and judge of all. And so guilt, or reetas, is well defined to be non-English words. For so Bathsheba says unto David, that she and her son Solomon should be kataim, sinners. That is, be esteemed guilty, or liable unto punishment for some evil laid unto their charge. 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 21. And the distinction of non-English words and non-English words is but the same thing in diverse words, for both do but express the relation of sin unto the sanction of the law. Or, if they may be conceived to differ, yet they are inseparable. For there can be no non-English words where there is no non-English words. Much less, is there anything of weight in the distinction of rietes colpea and rietes ponea? For this rietes colpea is nothing but dignitas ponea propter colpam. Sin has other considerations, namely its formal nature, as it is a transgression of the law and the stain of filth that it brings upon the soul. But the guilt of it is nothing but its respect unto punishment from the sanction of the law. And so, indeed, rietas colpea is rietas ponea. And the guilt of sin is its deserts of punishment. And where there is not this rietas colpea, there can be no ponea. No punishment properly so called. For ponea is vindicta noxia, the revenge due to sin. 
So, therefore, there can be no punishment, nor rietas panea, the guilt of it, but where there is rietas culpea, or sin considered with its guilt. And the rietas panea that may be supposed without the guilt of sin is nothing but that obnoxiousness unto afflictive evil on the occasion of sin, which the Socinians admit with respect unto the suffering of Christ, and yet execrate his satisfaction. And if this distinction should be apprehended to be of rietas from its formal respect unto sin and punishment, it must in both parts of the distinction be of the same signification. Otherwise, there is an equivocation in the subject of it. But rietas panea is a liableness and obnoxiousness unto punishment according to the sentence of the law that whereby a sinner becomes hupadikos tolteo and then rietas kolpea must be an obnoxiousness unto sin which is uncouth. There is therefore no imputation of sin where there is no imputation of its guilt. For the guilt of punishment which is not its respect unto the desert of sin, is a plain fiction. There is no such thing in rerum nature. There is no guilt of sin, but in its relation unto punishment. That, therefore, which we affirm herein is, that our sins were so transferred on Christ, as that thereby He became a sham, hupadikas tolteo, reas, responsible unto God and obnoxious unto punishment in the justice of God for them. He was Elenea Colpea Reas, perfectly innocent in himself, but took our guilt on him or our obnoxiousness unto punishment for sin. And so he may be and may be said to be the greatest debtor in the world who never borrowed nor owed one farthing on his own account, if he becomes surety for the greatest debt of others. So Paul became a debtor unto Philemon upon his undertaking for Onesimus, who before owed him nothing. And two things concurred unto this imputation of sin unto Christ. First, the act of God imputing it. Second, the voluntary act of Christ himself in the undertaking of it or admitting of the charge. Parentheses number one. The act of God in this imputation of the guilt of our sins unto Christ is expressed by his laying all our iniquities upon him, making him to be sin for us who knew no sin, and the like. For, brackets number one, as the supreme governor, lawgiver, and judge of all unto whom it belonged, to take care that his holy law was observed, or the offenders punished, he admitted upon the transgression of it the sponsion or suretyship of Christ to answer for the sins of men. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. Bracket number 2. In order unto this end, he made him under the law, or gave the law power over him, to demand of him and inflict on him the penalty which was due unto sins for them whom he undertook. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, chapter 4 verse 4 and 5. 
Brackets number three. For the declaration of the righteousness of God in this setting forth of Christ to be a propitiation and to bear our iniquities, the guilt of our sins was transferred unto him in an act of the righteous judgment of God accepting and esteeming of him as the guilty person, as it is with public sureties in every case. Parentheses number two. The Lord Christ's voluntary susception of the state and condition of a surety or undertaker for the church to appear before the throne of God's justice for them to answer whatever was laid unto their charge was required hereunto. And this he did absolutely. There was a concurrence of his own will in and unto all those divine acts whereby he and the church were constituted one mystical person. And of his own love and grace did he as our surety stand in our stead before God when he made inquisition for sin. He took it on himself as unto the punishment which it deserved. Hence, it became just and righteous that he should suffer the just for the unjust that he might bring us unto God. For if this not be so, I desire to know what has become of the guilt of the sins of believers. If it were not transferred on Christ, it remains still upon themselves, or it is nothing. It will be said that guilt is taken away by the free pardon of sin. But if so, there was no need of punishment for it at all, which is indeed what the Socinians plead. But by others is not admitted. For if punishment be not for guilt, it is not punishment. But it is fiercely objected against what we have asserted, that if the guilt of our sins was imputed unto Christ, then was he constituted a sinner thereby. For it is the guilt of sin that makes anyone to be truly a sinner. This is urged by Bellarmine, not for its own sake, but to disprove the imputation of his righteousness unto us, as it is continued by others with the same design. For he says, If we be made righteous and the children of God through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, then was he made a sinner, non-English words, by the imputation of the guilt of our sins or our unrighteousness unto him. And the same objection is pressed by others with instances of consequences which, for many reasons, I heartily wish had been forborne. But I answer... Brackets number one, nothing is more absolutely true, nothing is more sacredly or assuredly believed by us than that nothing which Christ did or suffered, nothing that he undertook or underwent, did or could constitute him subjectively, inerrantly, and thereon personally a sinner or guilty of any sin of his own to bear the guilt or blame of other men's faults. To be alienea culpea reas makes no man a sinner unless he did unwisely or irregularly undertake it. But that Christ should admit anything of sin in himself as it is absolutely inconsistent with the hypostatical union, so it would render him unmet for all other duties of his office. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. 
and I confess it has always seemed scandalous unto me that Socinius, Crelius, and Grotius do grant that in some sense Christ suffered for his own sins and would prove it from that very place wherein it is positively denied. Chapter 7, verse 27. This ought to be sacredly fixed and not a word used nor thought entertained of any possibility of the contrary upon any supposition whatever. Brackets number two. None ever dreamed of a transfusion or propagation of sin from us unto Christ, such as there was from Adam unto us. For Adam was a common person unto us. We are not so to Christ. Yea, he is so to us. And the imputation of our sins unto him is a singular act of divine dispensation, which no evil consequence can ensue upon. Brackets number three. To imagine such an imputation of our sins unto Christ, as that thereon they should cease to be our sins, and become his absolutely, is to overthrow that which is affirmed. For, on that supposition, Christ could not suffer for our sins, for they ceased to be ours antecedently unto his suffering. But the guilt of them was so transferred unto him that through his suffering for it, it might be pardoned unto us. These things be premised, I say, first, there is in sin a transgression of the preceptive part of the law, and there is an obnoxiousness unto the punishment from the sanction of it. It is the first that gives sin its formal nature, and where that is not subjectively, no person can be constituted formally a sinner. However, anyone may be so denominated, as unto some certain end or purpose, yet without this formally a sinner none can be, whatever be imputed unto them. And where that is, no non-imputation of sin, as unto punishment, can free the person in whom it is from being formerly a sinner. When Bathsheba told David that she and her son Solomon should be chataim, sinners, by having crimes laid unto their charge, and when Judah told Jacob that he would be a sinner before him always, on the account of any evil that befell Benjamin, it should be imputed unto him, yet neither of them could thereby be constituted a sinner formally. And, on the other hand, when Shimonai desired David not to impute sin unto him, whereby he escaped present judgment, yet did not that non-imputation free him formally from being a sinner. Wherefore, sin under this consideration as a transgression from the preceptive part of the law, cannot be communicated from one unto another, unless it be by the propagation of a vitiated principle or habit. But yet neither so will the personal sin of one, as an error in him, ever come to be the personal sin of another. Adam has upon his personal sin communicated a vicious, depraved, and corrupted nature unto all his posterity. And, besides, the guilt of his actual sin is imputed unto them, as if it had been committed by every one of them. But yet, 
his particular personal sin, neither ever did, nor ever could become the personal sin of any one of them, any otherwise, than by the imputation of its guilt unto them. Wherefore, our sins neither are nor can be so imputed unto Christ, as that they should become subjectively his, as they are a transgression of the preceptive part of the law. A physical translation or transfusion of sin is, in this case, naturally and spiritually impossible. And yet, on a supposition thereof alone do the horrid consequences mentioned depend. But the guilt of sin is an external respect of it, with regard unto the station of the law only. This is separable from sin. And if it were not so, no one sinner could either be pardoned or saved. It may, therefore, be made others by imputation, and yet that other not render formally a sinner thereby. This was that which was imputed unto Christ, whereby he was rendered obnoxious unto the curse of the law. For it was impossible that the law should pronounce any accursed but the guilty, nor would do so. Deuteronomy chapter 27 verse 26. Secondly, there is a great difference between the imputation of the righteousness of Christ unto us and the imputation of our sins unto Christ, so as that he cannot in the same manner be said to be made a sinner by the one as we are made righteous by the other. For our sin was imputed unto Christ only as he was our surety for a time. To this end, that he might take it away, destroy it, and abolish it. It was never imputed unto him, so as to make any alteration absolutely in his personal state and condition. But his righteousness is imputed unto us, to abide with us, to be ours always, and to make a total change in our state and condition, as unto our relation unto God. Our sin was imputed unto him only for a season, not absolutely, but as he was a surety, and unto the special end of destroying it, and taking on him this condition, that his righteousness should be made ours forever. All things are otherwise in the imputation of his righteousness unto us, which respects us absolutely, and not under a temporary capacity, abides with us forever, changes our state and relation unto God, and is an effect of a superabounding grace. But, it will be said that if our sins, as to the guilt of them, were imputed unto Christ, then God must hate Christ, for he hates the guilty. I know not well how I come to mention these things, which, indeed, I look upon as cavails, such as men may multiply, if they please, against any part of the mysteries of the gospel. But seeing it is mentioned, it may be spoken unto. And, first, it is certain that the Lord Christ, taking on him the guilt of our sins, was a high act of obedience unto God. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. And, for which the Father loved him. John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. There was, therefore, no reason why God should hate Christ for his taking on him our debt and the payment of it in an act of the highest obedience unto his will. Secondly, 
God in this manner is considered as a rector, ruler, and judge. Now, it is not required of the severest judge that, as a judge, he should hate the guilty person. No, although he be guilty originally by intention and not by imputation. As such, he has no more to do but consider the guilt and pronounce the sentence of punishment. But, thirdly, suppose a person, out of a heroic generosity of mind, should become an antipsukos for another, for his friend, for a good man, so as to answer for him with his life, as Judah undertook to be for Benjamin as to his liberty, which, when a man has lost, he is civilly dead, and, non-English words, would the most cruel tyrant under heaven that should take away his life, in that case, hate him? Would he not rather admire his worth and virtue? As such a one it was that Christ suffered, and no otherwise. Fourthly, all the force of this exception depends on the ambiguity of the word hate. For it may signify either an adversation or detestation of mind, or only a will of punishing, as in God mostly it does. In the first sense, there was no ground why God should hate Christ on this imputation of guilt unto him, whereby he became non-English words. Sin inerrant renders the soul polluted, abominable, and the only object of divine aversation. But for him who was perfectly innocent, holy, harmless, undefiled in himself, who did not sin, neither was there guile found in his mouth to take upon him the guilt of other sins, thereby to comply with and accomplish the design of God for the manifestation of his glory and infinite wisdom, grace, goodness, mercy, and righteousness unto the certain expiation and destruction of sin. Nothing could render him more glorious and lovely in the sight of God or man. But for a will of punishing in God where sin is imputed, none can deny it, but they must therewithal openly disavow the satisfaction of Christ. The heads of some few of those arguments wherewith the truth we have asserted is confirmed shall close this discourse. Number one, unless the guilt of sin was imputed unto Christ, sin was not imputed unto him in any sense, for the punishment of sin is not sin. Nor can those who are otherwise minded declare what it is of sin that is imputed. But the scripture is plain that God laid on him the iniquity of us all and made him to be sin for us, which could not otherwise be but by imputation. Number two, there can be no punishment but with respect unto the guilt of sin personally contracted or imputed. It is guilt alone that gives what is materially evil and afflictive the formal nature of the punishment and nothing else. And therefore those who understand full well the harmony of these things and opinions and are free to express their minds do constantly declare that if one of these be denied, the other must be so also. And if one be admitted, they must be both so. If guilt was not imputed unto Christ, he could not, as they plead well enough, 
undergo the punishment of sin. Much he might do and suffer on the occasion of sin, but undergo the punishment due unto sin he could not. And if it should be granted that the guilt of sin was imputed unto him, they will not deny but that he underwent the punishment of it. And if he underwent the punishment of it, why will they not deny but that the guilt of it was imputed unto him? For these things are inseparably related. Number three, Christ was made a curse for us. The curse of the law, as is expressly declared. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. But the curse of the law respects the guilt of sin only. So, as that where that is not, it cannot take place in any sense. And where that is, it does inseparably attend it. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Number four. The expressed testimonies of the scripture unto this purpose cannot be evaded without an open resting of their words and sense. So God is said to make all our iniquities to meet upon him, and he bear them on him as his burden. For so the word signifies, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6, God has laid on him, not English words, the iniquity, that is, the guilt of us all, verse 11, and their sin or guilt shall he bear. For that is the intendment of, non-English word, where joined with any other word that denotes sin, as it is in those places, Psalms 32, verse 5. Thou forgavest, non-English words, the iniquity of my sin, that is, the guilt of it, which is that alone that is taken away by pardon. That his soul was made an offering for the guilt of sin. That he was made sin. That sin was condemned in his flesh, etc. Number five. This was represented in all the sacrifices of old, especially the great anniversary. One, on the day of expiation, with the ordinance of the scapegoat, as has been before declared. Number six. Without a supposition hereof, it cannot be understood how the Lord Christ should be our antipsukos, or suffer anti-amon in our stead, unless we will admit the exposition of Mr. Ho, a late writer, who, reckoning up how many things the Lord Christ did in our stead, adds, as the sense thereof, that it is to bestead us, than which, if he can invent anything more fond and senseless, he has a singular faculty in such an employment. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts, are on the web at www dot swrb dot com we can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb dot com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710 dash 37A Avenue, 
Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and texts, etc., that SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends. But we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading. And remember that Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you.